Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend, George Hodgkin. We met at business school at Stanford about four years ago now. I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, but he is the CEO of a company called BRC Company, uh, stands for Biopharma Research, and he's in the burgeoning marijuana industry. Um, so George, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Ben. Good to see you. And I can't believe it's been four years. Uh, glad to be here. <laughs> Time flies. So you have a very unique background for the job you're in. You were a Navy SEAL prior to going to business school. Can you just talk to us about what inspired you to go down that path? I can. I remember uh, distinctly being a freshman in high school uh, and our social study teacher pulling everyone into the cafeteria and watching the Twin Towers come down on September 11th. And I think like everyone, uh, that was sort of our generation's uh, where were you moment that we'll tell our kids about. And I had grown up wanting to serve in the military. My father was in the army. Uh, he was out before I, you know, before I grew up. So it didn't have like a material impact on me. But I remember it was always in the periphery. I'd always wanted to serve. And then watching the Twin Towers come down, uh, I remember being overwhelmed by feelings of like everyone's sadness, anger, grief, uh, and then I kind of had this, like, well, what do I do about it? Uh, I can't just sit here. This is our generation's moment to actually do something. Um, and I kind of talked loosely. I had talked loosely growing up about joining the military. And I saw no better reason uh, to, to serve at that point than to defend the country after September 11th. And so I, I decided um, if I was going to do this, I wanted to do it in what I saw sort of the most impactful, most uh, kind of on the front lines manner. And so I decided to uh, try out and become a Navy SEAL. So everybody loves some war stories, but walk us through BUDS. You know, a lot of videos have been made about it and people just love to hear about it. What was the, what did you learn about yourself in BUDS? Let's go that route. What did you learn about yourself? Yeah, BUDS is kind of the, looking back on it now, it was like the best time in my life that I never want to have again. I didn't know uh, then that it was going to play such a large part in self-discovery, both sort of professionally and personally. And I also didn't realize, um, you know, I imagine sort of similar to your background in flight school and then flying actual real world, real, real world missions. I didn't realize kind of how good I had it. Uh, you know, BUDS is, is around a year, can, can be a year and a half with some of the advanced training process by which they, the Navy effectively takes at that time, men, now men and women who say, I want to be a SEAL. And they see, well, how bad do you really want to be a SEAL? So there's focuses on teamwork, leadership, mental fortitude. Uh, and it's all sort of done through the lens of a gut check. You're cold, you don't sleep, you're, you're hungry, uh, under a lot of physical duress. And so you really start to learn, one, like how bad do you really want to be a SEAL? Can you, can you participate and thrive in this really ambiguous, challenging physical and mental environment. Uh, one of the best ways I've heard it described is if you're physically prepared, then it's 90% uh, mental, 10% physical. If you can't meet the physical requirements, it's impossible. But if you can, uh, then it's a mental game. And so what I learned is the value, value and importance of teamwork. Um, you are really placed in, in pretty um, uh, intimidating and, and challenging situations with guys that you've never met from all sorts of different walks of life. Uh, white kids, black kids, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. It's the great equalizer. 
Nobody cares who your mommy or daddy was or where you came from. It's all about can you perform in the moment. And the way you perform in the moment is by relying on your teammates and supporting them and leading them. So I recognize during BUDS uh, the value and importance of teamwork and then how leadership and management um, can inspire a team to do great things. And then I think the other sort of tangible learning I had about myself was, was that no matter the obstacle seemingly insurmountable or not, uh, if you just keep at it and don't quit, you can find success and achieve your, your dreams or your goals. Uh, the, the way I've heard it really well described is it's so intimidating and so challenging um, that there's this kind of mantra, like how do you eat an elephant? And you, know, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so you learn to take every obstacle uh, kind of individually versus being overwhelmed by stress or hardship. You just start chipping away at it one bite at a time. Were there any moments during that training where you thought about quitting? I, it's hard, you know, it's hard to look back and I, I never had like a sort of seminal event where I was teetering on the edge and said like, I should quit. Uh, you know, no, I'm not going to do it and jump back in. Um, so I never had kind of that, like that moment at the precipice where I decided to keep, to keep training and buzz. Our class started with around 225 guys. We ended um, training with around, I think it was 40 or 45. Um, so quitting, but the, the interesting thing, two interesting things about buds, uh, the first is that it's completely voluntary. So you can stop at any time if the pain or the cold or the hunger is too much. And then secondly, um, unlike a lot of military training programs, officers and enlisted people uh, go through the same exact training, shoulder to shoulder. To shoulder. So, so you're, there's sort of nuances about the, the training requirements, but effectively you're put through the same uh, put through the same training. I think everybody, I would be lying if I said there weren't times when I thought to myself, man, what the hell have I done? What have I gotten myself into? I could quit and go grab like a coffee and, and be warm and have a bite to eat. But so it's sort of always in the periphery. Uh, but I never had that precipice moment where I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, it's funny, Buds takes place um, in San Diego, a small town called Coronado off the coast of San Diego, which to, to any of the listeners that haven't been there is like one of the world's most beautiful beaches. I mean, it's just incredibly picturesque. And on the north, the, the north part of the beach, people there are on spring break. They're partying, playing volleyball. The Hotel uh, Dell, one of the fanciest kids. hotels in America. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. It's like so beautiful. It's this little slice of paradise. Uh, and then just, you know, 100 yards or 200 yards south on the beach is where Bud's training takes place. And so there's just all these miserable 18 to 25-year-old young men uh, that are freezing cold. And I, I distinctly remember uh, being incredibly cold and like hungry and just miserable and kind of like snapped out of our little world, uh, our little universe and just kind of looked up the beach. And there's like a bunch of four and five-year-old girls out there splashing and building sandcastles. And I'm like, all right, this can't be that bad. Like those people are on vacation. They're not going to kill us here in Buds. I can make it another day. Yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. You think that would cause some people to spiral into despair, but it's a gut check on what, what real is and you can just put yourself through it. You know, I, I did not go through nearly as challenging an experience, but to your point at the beginning about, you know, looking back, you know, going through SEER school, which is our survive, evade, resist, escape school, you know, 
the week or so we were there was absolutely horrendous. Um, but I look back and I was like, you know, you dug deep and you realized what you were made out of and you learned a lot about yourself in crisis and depravity. And there, there are some really good things about going through um, experiences like that, that, that stay with you the rest of your life. Um, and to your point about not quitting, you know, as we were talking pre-show, this has been a really challenging couple months for me professionally. And now it's, you know, compared to what, what we did previously, it, it doesn't pale in comparison, but you know, there are moments when I was like, I, I need to quit and move on. But, you know, sometimes you just take one day at a time, one hour at a time, see what's next in the horizon, just knock it out. And then you break through and you're like, wow, okay, we made it through and there's actually a pretty good outcome. Uh, and so that, le- that lesson in resiliency and iteration, I think is, is a really important one. And as we get into your story, I'm sure we'll hear more about it from the entrepreneurial side. Um, but you know, you graduated BUDS and went into the fleet. Uh, so maybe just take us into one experience when you were overseas that kind of sticks out in your mind that kind of defined how your experience in uniform was while serving our country in, in a combat environment. I would hearken back to, um, there was a mission. I was a young, uh, a young SEAL officer in Afghanistan. It was my first uh, combat deployment. And my boss, which is known as an OIC, an officer in charge, you know, a couple of years older than me, um, Naval Academy grad, someone that I have always looked up to and will always look up to is a friend, a father, a mentor, just a really phenomenal person. Like I'm, I'm very grateful to have in my life. Uh, he was my mentor. Uh, and he trained me as sort of the senior officer in the crowd. And I was the junior officer in the crowd. He, he trained me, mentored me as we got prepared to go overseas. Uh, and towards the end of our deployment, we had been in Afghanistan for, I don't know, six, seven months at this time. Um, he started to give me more freedom to operate and lead missions on my own, which was really pretty unique for a first time, first combat deployment for a SEAL. And I had earned his trust and, and frankly, I was doing well at my job largely because of his training and his mentorship, giving me the opportunity to get out and lead and run missions on my own, despite being you know, young, 23 years old or whatever I was. Um, and I remember this, this mission uh, that we were really excited about as a platoon. Uh, it was very close to where we were sort of based out of. And we received uh, some intelligence kind of in the middle of the night. Um, hey, there's a Taliban there's a meeting of Taliban bomb makers and planners and it's really close to you guys and it's going down right now. Uh, and there's at least four of them there. They don't think, you know, we know we're watching them. Grab your guys and your guns and go disrupt this meeting. And we knew one of the guys was a, a bomb maker that uh, had blood on his hands, had, had killed American soldiers, young American soldiers. Uh, and so we're really excited to go um, catch these guys, kill or capture or whatever it entailed. Uh, and my boss, uh, had come down, like literally two hours prior, had come down with a terrible stomach flu. I mean, debilitating stomach, stomach fog or flu. So to the point where he couldn't get out of bed, couldn't operate, dehydrated, puking. Uh, and he just sort of looked at me. I was like, all right, you got it. Take the guys. And so, you know, I was 23 years old. My team, teammates and I, many of whom had effectively grown up their entire adult lives like in Iraq and were raised by the SEAL teams, almost like a bunch of Mowgli's being raised in the jungle book. Uh, and here I was with like 23, 24 year old kid leading my first mission. And it really was like the most uh, sexy uh, mission that you become a SEAL. That's why you become a SEAL is to do like what's called a TST, time sensitive target, um, a raid in the middle of the night with your team. And I remember, and it went 
phenomenally well. Uh, we, we captured or killed these guys, um, I mean, killed these guys uh, that were terrible people and had you know, tried to kill us when they discovered what, what we were doing. And I remember leading this team in combat and effectively leading them, just like letting them manage the, the mission themselves because they're all incredible experts. Uh, and I remember having this, like it was in the middle of the night and there, we were using helicopters to track them down and it was a running gun battle over this, this plateau, this crystal clear night in Afghanistan. You know, and you're seeing everything through green night vision goggles. Uh, and these guys were, you know, who are 30, 35 years old are reporting to me, like little old George over the radio, hey, we've done this. And I was like executing this mission. And I kind of remember pulling back for a half a second and thinking, oh my God, like this is, this is my dream come true. There's nothing better in the world. And it's going so well. And it was the honor of a lifetime. Uh, and it was just phenomenal. I think what that experience taught me one it was just like the most fulfilled and the most purely satisfying moment of a job of a professional life that you know you could ever have but it really taught me the value of having a good leader or manager or teammate that this guy uh, entrusted our team to me and it's because he had trained me for this moment for two years uh, and I was able to step up and do it we were successful because of our teammates, but uh, man, what an incredible experience. And it, I think it goes to show the value of Bud and of the training that like you can take a guy who's never done this before and has gone through the training pipeline. And when all the chips are on the table, they're going to succeed because they've trained and worked towards this moment. Uh, and it taught me the value, sort of the outcome of focus and discipline and working hard over many years to something. Wow. So I'm curious, you know, we both went to business school together, coming out of the military. And I was a little bit, um, what's the right term? I don't say shocked, but I was just amazed at our classmates. They, you know, those who had built their own companies, you know, worked for tech companies. Um, but a lot of them were, were younger than us. How did you take the experiences that you had serving overseas as a SEAL? And what was your experience at business school interacting with folks who had a different life path and kind of had different levels of success? Like, how, how did you engage with that? I entirely share your uh, awe and amazement uh, at them. I think the, at first it was a little bit defensive, frankly, because it was like, you know, everybody was sort of sniffing each other out the first couple of weeks or months. And it's, I, I definitely experienced, I think I experienced two things that um, kind of colored the first few months for me. The first was a little bit of, imposter syndrome, which was like, hey, I was in the military, I was good at my job in the military, but oh my God, I don't, these guys are just so much smarter than me. Our classmates, I was like, I just remember thinking, you know, I think I could probably outwork some of these people, but to no end, like they're just incredibly brilliant and sophisticated and worldly. Like how the hell did I slip through the cracks? I hope they don't discover me here at Stanford and rescind my letter of admission. Uh, there's a little bit of that. Uh, and then there was also a little bit of, um, of uh, almost uh, internally, sadness or depression isn't the right word, but I really missed my SEAL teammates. Uh, I really missed kind of the purpose I felt in the Navy. And I missed the, um, the, the professional locker room environment in the sense that like you're with your, you're with your teammates 24 seven getting dressed for missions, you know, chiding each other, talking crap to each other about 
whatever, just, just be, having a really intimate and close relationship with all of these SEAL teammates that's not unique to the SEAL team, it's, it's you know, broad in the military. Um, and so I was engaging with my Stanford classmates that I just didn't, I had so much respect for, but I just didn't know on the deep personal level. Uh, on so many interactions, I just missed my friends. I like, just missed my SEAL teammates. Um, but as the time went on, I think that awe of how smart my friends and classmates were, um, the veneer sort of wore off a little bit and it like, these are normal people. Like, yes, they've sold companies. Yes, they've worked at amazing institutions, but they have the same concerns that I do around like starting a family or, or getting a good job next time. Um, and then I think once that, um, once we gelled a little bit, it just became so much more enjoyable to just be personally close with all my new classmates. Um, I think the, one of the, excuse me, one of the things that I, um, I thought engaging with them sort of professionally and academically was interesting was we did have a lot to offer each other. Uh, and I think most military folks who go to graduate school would probably agree that our classmates had so much to learn from us in terms of leadership and management. We had so much to learn from them in terms of intellectual horsepower and business acumen uh, and, and kind of global sophistication. And so it made for like a really cordial and, and wonderful like, relationship. I could teach them about leading and managing teams through uncertainty, and they could teach me about like business 101 and what it means to work in a you know in Europe or China or wherever. So I, I miss those days. I thought it was like just incredible. I really do miss it. Yeah, it was it was remarkable. And I think the further I'm away from both the squadron and the two years on the farm, you know, you come to realize what a special experience both those were in different ways, but life shaping. Um, so when you left the military, did you know what you wanted to do or did you come to business school to try to find your path? I had no clue. Uh, I, I wrote my essay on like consulting, um, just because it, I mean, it's such an easy tie over from military. So I sort of showed up, oh yeah, I'm going to be a consultant. But like, I didn't even know what a consultant did. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was hoping at Stanford to figure it out. And so what, what did that process go what was that process like for you? And, uh, you know, from my, I did five internships before I kind of figured out that I was going into consulting. It was kind of not my last choice, but it, it definitely took me a while to get around to that. Um, but what was your search like in the first year or so? And then how did you end up where you're at right now? Uh, my search was like uh, unintentionally misguided, incredibly wide breadth, like shotgun approach, just grasping at straws. Like I had no clue what I wanted to do. I think I tried, I like interned at Facebook or no, tried to get an internship at Facebook as a product manager because I thought that sounded cool. And then they, I remember being asked like, well, what's your favorite, you know, tech stack? And I was like, oh, I'm a Google guy, you know, love Gmail. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, awesome. I don't think this is the right fit. Uh, <laughs> so I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, and so I just tried as much as possible. I worked at a, um, a healthcare startup during one summer, tried to start a software company with a classmate, uh, did a, 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 a software internship in Bangkok, Thailand for, for six weeks. Um, and I think it was just really fun. What I took away from it was like, to my own detriment, when I was in the military, I had a very narrow view on sort of what was out there. Kind of you don't know what you don't know, but also I think a little bit of um, 
almost a little bit of arrogance, like like believing in the nobility of the military a little bit too much. And I think it is an incredibly noble calling, but that doesn't mean that it has a monopoly on like job satisfaction. And I kind of thought that um, going into it, like, oh, nobody, nobody in the world understands the satisfaction I feel in the military. Nobody understands what it means to what it means to lead men and women in combat. So everything's going to be a step down for me. And I think that was a little bit arrogant um, because I just came across so many wonderful industries and wonderful people that like had the same appreciation for their work and the same desire to make a difference that I had in the military. It was just different. And so I tried all, a ton of different things and then ultimately ended up starting, uh, starting our company the second year, which was a little bit happenstance, um, but I'm, I'm incredibly glad I did. So yeah, so walk us through the company formation process. I know, and I think I recall you met someone who had this idea and they would potentially fund it, but walk us through kind of how you landed on this idea and what the evolution was like. Sure. So I, during our second year at the GSB, uh, I got involved uh, in the healthcare of a uh, fellow veteran, uh, a veteran who was going, uh, a former teammate who was going through some really hard times with respect to opioid addiction, PTSD, and it was clearly spiraling out of control uh, from this teammate of mine that I was still in contact with. Um, and I got involved in this person's healthcare, uh, primarily just because they needed a hand, they needed a buddy. And this person, I remember meeting with their doctor uh, and my friend and my teammate in this, this person says to their doctor, look, doc, I'm gonna try this medical marijuana thing. Can you just tell me like wh where I should get it and how much I should use? And the doctor said, like, look, son, at the end of the day, it's not going to kill you. But there's no way for me to answer that question as an actual doctor, as a physician. There is very little in terms of research that goes on with marijuana. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, that's crazy. Like, I had classmates getting it delivered to their dorm room through the app Ease in seven minutes, like it's Uber Eats. And then Jeff Sessions and the federal government say it's worse than heroin. Meanwhile, everybody and their brother's doing it, like, hang on, what do you mean the doctors don't know what's going on? And I, I had this sort of moment and then simul and I was like, man, this is crazy. And we're sitting on all these entrepreneurial classes at Stanford where it's like, if you have an idea or, or you see a, an interesting gap uh, in knowledge or market or experience, like maybe there's a business there. And so I started to think to myself, this is incredible. Uh, and then meanwhile, I started back to the earlier question, like, what were you doing? I started doing um, just random consulting work for uh, high net worth family mainly to try and like use the money to pay for school or vacations because you know, it's not going to save much money coming out of the military. Um, and this person said to me, hey, look, I'd like for you to, to really dive into the marijuana industry. I think they're, I'd be interested in investing. And so I went back to this person and said, hey, look, here's this experience I've had. Here's my consulting report. Uh, at the end of the day, you could invest in these companies, but I'm going to start this company and I'd like for you to invest in mine. Uh, and so we partnered and he, and he funded and uh, effectively became sort of like a co-founder um, and, and certainly a financial co-founder. And so we, uh, we started the business. I started the business then. And, and the premise is that 200 million Americans live in a state where they can access cannabis unless they're a doctor, a biotech researcher, um, or a university. So consumers are, are regulated effectively by state law. So if you live in California, you can get cannabis. But institutions are not. They have to follow federal law. So despite the fact that a pharma company, a university, or a biotech company is located in a jurisdiction that's legalized marijuana at the state level, they cannot touch it. So 
all these people are using it and none of the doctors or universities or pharmaceutical companies can effectively play in the space or touch it. So we started our business to go through the federal permitting process with the, the US Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA and the FDA to become federally licensed to produce uh, marijuana for cannabis for, um, for legitimate research. So that's what we're doing. And you guys are, are called BRC, Biopharma Research Company. That's a very uh, generic name. Could you walk us through the, the titling there and you know, what may have driven <laughs> that decision? Yeah, it's funny. You go through all the like branding and marketing courses at Stanford. And uh, so I think I had settled on this name and we started off kind of operating loosely under the name. You know, it's like a startup. Like you just start saying, hey, we're a company and like you haven't filed any paperwork, you haven't done anything. Uh, and so I think we were, we were getting along as like can pharma or can of pharma, like cannabis and pharma research. And not a single doctor or university would return my phone calls. Uh, and one of my co-founders, who is a Stanford, uh, Stanford and Harvard trained surgeon who has done a lot of work in opioid addiction, he was like, look, man, you are totally not understanding what doctors and institutions care about. They are incredibly risk averse. They're, uh, it, there's a lot of inertia that they have to overcome to do anything novel. They're just going to delete your email if it says anything canna or cannabis in it. He's like, what's the most vanilla, generic, boring name we can come up with? We can settle on biopharmaceutical research company. And overnight, doctors and, and universities started calling us back. It was like the weirdest experience. Wow, that's, that's a great story. I mean, it's, it's amazing how the title of your company will just switch that psychological thing in people's minds to want to engage with you. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I've, I know very little about the cannabis industry. Um, you know, I've never partaken, but... I've kind of dived into the history of marijuana in this country. And I know you probably know it better than anybody, um, but could you give our listeners and me just like a couple minute overview of, you know, the history of marijuana regulation in the U S and the current state right now? Yeah. So uh, marijuana as it's thought of or known as today is considered a schedule one drug in the United States, which means, uh, according to the federal government, not, namely the DEA, it has a high potential for abuse and no therapeutic value. So it's classified the same as heroin and meth. Uh, meanwhile, cocaine would be a schedule two, meaning it's less restrictive. The more restrictive something is, like marijuana being a schedule one, uh, the more effectively impossible it becomes to touch or research or produce. So the federal government effectively says it's the worst drug on the planet, Nobody can use it. Nobody can touch it. Uh, that really started, uh, that was codified really in 1970 under a law called the Controlled Substance Act, a little bit before that, but mainly 1970 under the Controlled Substance Act, where they created these classifications for different drugs. Historically, going back, you know, 100, 200 years, cannabis and marijuana were in no way considered bad uh, or a drug at all. In fact, uh, presidents, Jefferson and Washington grew marijuana uh, on their farm as, you know, as, as industrial ingredients for fiber, hemp seed, hemp fiber, et cetera. Uh, and then if you go back into like the early 1900s, marijuana was used as a drug. Extracts were used for all sorts of different applications. Eli Lilly sold marijuana uh, and, and cannabis extracts, similar to what you see today. 
Uh, and then as uh, the 20th century progressed, several, uh, you could say they're politically savvy, some would call them just evil geniuses, uh, politicians decided to use marijuana to drive a wedge between white voters and demonize uh, minorities as a way to scare white voters to the polls and use them to drive their political agendas. So the whole reefer madness, if you recall, there's an old movie called Reefer Madness, but it's kind of this movement. Um, everyone's terrified of marijuana and what it turns people into. That was all uh, driven by racial people that wanted to exploit race and say, look, Mexicans, this is you know what they would say, Mexicans and blacks use marijuana. It's going to destroy our country. We should demonize them and demonize that drug. And white people, if you don't get out and vote and support us, the blacks and the Mexicans are going to take over our country. And so that hysteria and demonizing on behalf of sort of the politicians and powers that be over time became codified and legislated and marijuana became this thing that was evil. And, and you know, our parents' generation and then the, the just say no to drugs all stemmed from that. And then uh, really the next sort of movement you see is during the, one of the large moments is during the HIV AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, patients, uh, suffering patients were being given marijuana to treat their hunger and their pain. And it was working and everyone knew it was working sort of underground and started, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago in California, it became this underground movement to treat people that were suffering. And that movement has grown and grown and grown and grown. And now you see what it is today, which is there's a, a, a litany of state legal, federally illegal cannabis businesses serving recreational adult use consumers and then medical consumers uh, who are using marijuana to treat whatever ailment they may have. So you mentioned, you know, the treatment of ailments and you've mentioned the challenges veterans have with PTSD. Where is the state of research right now in terms of using marijuana to help folks who, you know, have gone through extreme experiences? Um, what, what does the research show us? Um, the research, the research doesn't exist in, uh, in enough volume and size and scope to really tell us much of anything, which is one of the reasons we started the company and is really sort of dangerous and sad at the same time. Uh, one third of post 9-11 veterans claim to use marijuana to treat their PTSD. 90% of veterans in, in the United States want the federal government to research, is marijuana good or not for PTSD or chronic pain? Um, so there's a, there's a need for it and there's a desire for it. The research has been done in such limited fashion here in the United States and in such small increments that depending on what side of the aisle you're on, you can kind of cherry pick the data to tell you whatever you want. Uh, some people say, look, turns out marijuana is actually bad for PTSD and it can exacerbate it. Uh, other people say, and a lot of veterans self-report that marijuana does tend to allow them to sleep better. It does calm them and, and alleviate some of their paranoia uh, or, or just it, it allows them to sort of get back into society because it just brings their nerves down a little bit. Our, our point of view and my point of view is at the end of the day, we need to be researching this stuff uh, and really come to a conclusive answer. If we're going to send people off to war, uh, we should be doing everything in our power to offer them whatever alternative treatments they want. If they're proven effective and safe, uh, we should be looking at that. And unfortunately, right now, it's just not happening. Uh, and so veterans are left to make a choice, which is, 
do we kind of trust with our, what our buddies are telling us that marijuana works for them? Do we trust them um, or do we not? And unfortunately, there's no really rigorous body of evidence that would say, hey, it is good. And in these manners for these types of people. And until we get there, people will be left to make really important healthcare decisions, uh, kind of flying blind. So what is the state of federal regulation around marijuana research? You mentioned that there's not a lot and that there's a lot of risk aversion in these research institutions. And yet you found a gap in the market. So, you know, is there, is there legal means to do this? Is there interest to do this? There's no access to the, to the plants. Like how are you guys helping to address the shortfall you see? A little bit more of the latter than the former. So there is a mechanism there's, there's, and I think about it kind of in the supply demand equation. If you are a researcher, uh, there's a mechanism for you to be licensed and permitted to legally handle marijuana. You get a, a research permit or license from the DEA. I would consider that sort of the demand side. You know, your researcher at Stanford that wants to look at, wants to get marijuana products and give them to rats or animals or veterans to study what it does. That is a uh, burdensome and long and treacherous process, but it's very well trodden and doable. And doable. Uh, it's a very well-trodden path. The catch-22 is on the uh, supply side. So if you go through this rigmarole to become a licensed researcher of marijuana, you are forbidden uh, from breaking federal law. In other words, you go through this process, you get a permit to research marijuana, you cannot go to a dispensary uh, in a state legal mechanism and purchase that marijuana. It has to come from a DEA licensed or DEA approved source of marijuana. That's the supply side. For nearly 70 years in the United States, the Drug Enforcement Administration has not issued a new production permit to produce marijuana for research. So there's a catch-22, so, no, so there's effectively no supply. So the way to get around this or to work within the system is these researchers, and we help them with this in some instances, is they import legal marijuana from outside the United States. So we recently imported the first ever legal marijuana under a DEA permit from Europe into the U.S. for study. We did the same thing from Latin America into the U.S. As kind of a red-blooded American and a capitalist, that pisses me off. Those should be American jobs and American taxpaying dollars being created uh, by U.S. industry. Like it doesn't sound very America first to me uh, during the, our last administration that our researchers have to go get products outside the U.S. Kind of give me a break. Um, Historically, the government has licensed one group at the University of Mississippi uh, to produce marijuana for research. Studies have shown and it's been publicly reported that their products are uh, really, really, really subpar. Uh, and so the researchers don't use them because it just doesn't make sense. The analogy I would use is, is it's kind of like the DMV. Like, do you get a driver's license if you go to the DMV? Yes. Does anyone in any way enjoy that experience or is it... Uh, sort of replicable and commercial and aggressive and good, I would argue most people would say no. That's the analogy that I would use for sort of the federal marijuana that's available for research. So our business has gone through the federal permitting process to be the first entity, the first corporate entity to be licensed to produce federally legal marijuana uh, for these researchers. We hope that that permit, that final permit, uh, will be received in really short order, like potentially the next two to four weeks uh, and then we can really ramp up production and start producing on behalf of these researchers and universities. 
So walk us through the past three years when it comes to like the regulatory environment you've navigated. You, know, you mentioned Attorney General Jeff Sessions and, you know, he's a well-known outspoken critic of marijuana and the DOJ had a very hard line against it. The latter part of the Trump administration, you know, probably had a similar type tack and then now the new administration. But what was it like as you were building this company to try to navigate that, uh, that, that regulatory uh, challenge? It was like chewing glass every day. Um, it was uh, challenging, but also sort of inspiring. It harkens back to the beginning of our conversation about what it means to be a SEAL. Uh, and I, this is the, the first time since having served in the military that I feel entirely purpose-driven and mission-focused to where we're not going to give up. We're not going to quit. We will navigate regulatory uh, ambiguity and regulatory apathy, frankly, to go through this crazy process. Um, and so it is hard as hell to do, but we haven't given up uh, and we haven't quit. The main challenge for us really is twofold. In order for the federal government to license you to do this, to produce a controlled substance, any controlled substance, be it like, you know, Tylenol codeine, or in this instance, uh, cannabis, you have to build your entire company, like physically, and physical infrastructure, you have to build your production facility, you have to hire your team before they will even consider you. So it's incredibly risky, and the startup costs are very high. Uh, so we built uh, an FDA and DEA compliant facility, we hired a team, we you know, we effectively built a manufacturing company over two years, and it just takes a lot of time. And our North Star was, we will figure out the regulatory stuff. The table stakes is you have to be ready to execute. So we're going to build that, and we'll navigate the, the bureaucracy you know, as we go. In 2016, the federal government, 2017, the federal government said, we need to license more companies to do this, to make marijuana for research, because we got a big problem on our hands. And then Sessions got involved and tried to slow walk it, tried to pocket veto it. All I quickly became kind of an advocate, uh, you know, going to D.C. once a month and banging on all the doors till people would allow this program to proceed for the right reasons. And so they kind of cracked. And in 2018, 2019, the government said, yes, you guys are right. Uh, we do need to finally move forward and issue you all a permit, issue companies like yours a permit to produce marijuana for research. And so they rolled out a, a federal regulatory scheme uh, to start kind of an industry from scratch uh, at the end of last year. And now we're moving forward and kind of rocking and rolling. And so we, we've created this kind of new industry in the United States for federally legal cannabis, um, which is awesome. It also feels like, uh, you know, it's exhausting, but um, I love it. We're, we're really in the first inning on the precipice of something great. So on the business side, given they just opened up these regulations, are there competitors emerging in this space? There, no doubt there are. I am very biased and think that, uh, you know, we're unique and special because we're so far along with our team, uh, the compliance expertise we bring to the table and our focus on quality, like traditional pharmaceutical quality. So I think our focus uh, our history of compliance, we don't break federal law. So there's a lot of people I consider that are competitors um, that break federal law by participating in the state legal, federally illegal cannabis markets. We don't do that. And so I, I think uh, we're, we're quickly becoming the trusted institutional partner of choice for institutions that want to engage in cannabis, but also care about compliance and they care about quality. And so that's our focus is compliance and quality 
and consistency of product. And so there are competitors, uh, but I don't think they're as hyper-focused as we are on the, on the three things that matter to us, like I just laid out. And how big is the market for this? Uh, no one really knows because it's a brand new category. Um, we think that uh, it's potentially up to about a $4 billion a year market. Several reasons we think that. Um, one, if we just look at different comps from around the world and places that have created a federal cannabis landscape, uh, if it's Canada or Israel or the United Kingdom, that's one of the ways we think about it, uh, about using comps to, to size our market. There's a couple of other things that I think are interesting from a commercial perspective. The first is there's a UK, uh, United Kingdom-based company that has produced the only FDA-approved marijuana-based drug. It's for children. It started as being marketed for children with epilepsy. They're doing incredible things for people that need a ton of help. I mean, it's a really, it's like the best example of sort of doing good and doing well. They have one drug, and, and right now in the United States, it does about $500 million a year uh, in sales. That business was just acquired by a large incumbent pharmaceutical company for $7 billion on one drug. Uh, and in our point of view, imagine if you can create a drug for chronic pain or anxiety or sleep or PTSD. And the market, you can see how it gets really big really quick. The other thing I would mention uh, is that um, when we look at states that have legalized marijuana, traditional pharmaceutical and alcohol spend drop by about 10 to 25%. So you see these large businesses, uh, large publicly traded businesses in most instances, where their market share is being cannibalized by the introduction of marijuana to the markets. Uh, but they don't have an answer right now. They have no way to access this adjacent emerging category because they're federally regulated. If we can partner with them uh, and help to create products that the consumer wants, but they can't otherwise make for themselves, um, like on the, on the drug development space, for example, then that's a huge market. You know, if you're a $40 billion a year revenue company and you lose 15% market share and there's a new product that comes, on, comes to line, your CEO on board better have an answer for what you're going to do. And right now, there's no way for them to engage in the space, by and large. And so we can partner for them and serve them. And that's our hope. And, and it, it stands to reason, right? Like the consumer is today, the consumer or the patient is incredibly suspicious of traditional pharmaceutical drugs, be it opioids or, or anything else. There's a, this mindfulness well, wellness shift plays out in your drug. If you're doctor says, hey, look, you can go try this CBD thing to go to bed, or I can write you a prescription for this, you know, this traditional pharma drug. A lot of our peers are going to say, you know, I'm going to try the CBD thing. Similar to alcohol, uh, we're not focused on the alcohol space at all, but it's just an interesting anecdote. If you and your buddies, uh, or, you know, you and your wives are going to, your wife and your, your couple friends are going to get together on a Friday night, 10 years ago, Everybody would, you know, you'd have a bottle of wine or some cocktails uh, and you'd wake up with a hangover and have, having consumed 300 calories, like, um, having consumed an additional 300 calories. Nowadays, that's, you, know, you didn't have an alternative. Nowadays, you can say, look, do we want to try this marijuana thing? We're not going to have a hangover and we're not going to consume any additional calories. And so the consumer is now and the patient has new alternatives, but the institution can't offer uh, institutional businesses can't offer those alternatives to date. So we think it's a really, uh, a really great market and a way to help, help people at the same time. Absolutely. So 
you're in your laboratory right now. Can you walk us through what you all do in the background here? The, the, the listeners can't see us, but, you know, George is sitting <laughs> in his laboratory. And, you know, I know right now you're kind of importing the, the goods to distribute, but eventually you're going to start growing it. What, what, what kind of research do you guys do? What kind of development do you do with the product? Totally. So right now we're partnering with several different universities. Um, we have a, a public partnership with University of California, Davis, to do uh, a lot of basic analytical chemistry uh, that you would do for any other plant substance, any other, uh, you know, if it's strawberries, walnuts, olives, we have a really solid understanding of the basic chemistry and biology of those plants. That doesn't really exist uh, for marijuana because academia has been so locked out in this market for so long. So what we're doing now is we're importing uh, marijuana under a DEA permit from all over the world. And we're working with these scientists, some of our own, some of university partners to lay the foundation to be able to produce uh, cannabis in such a way that it's highly sophisticated and highly consistent for the researcher. So we're analyzing things like the genome of cannabis. Uh, what does the, what do the phenotypes look like? What are the different cannabinoids, which are the, um, the, the molecules and chemicals that make up the cannabis plant? How do they behave under certain laboratory conditions? And we're just doing a lot of the basic foundational uh, biology and chemistry around the cannabis cannabis plant. Ultimately, what we hope to be doing in very short order out of this building is producing and growing federally legal marijuana that can be sent or sold to universities around the country for them to do their own research on, look at things like the effects of secondhand smoke of marijuana, the, the effects of marijuana usage on uh, breastfeeding or a pregnant person or on a child that has epilepsy or a veteran with PTSD. Um, until we, we're just scratching the surface and the implications, but that's, that's kind of the basic stuff we're doing now. And in terms of how much this costs, like what, how much does the research grade marijuana that you guys are going to be creating compare against, you know, what you might find in a medical marijuana dispensary for, for uses medical or recreational? Uh, it costs more. <laughs> uh, there is, it, it, it does cost more, uh, exactly how much more we're not entirely sure yet. Um, our goal is to support researchers and patients by making this, making this potential medicine or this research material affordable enough uh, for people that need it to access it on the research front. That being said, we do, going through the DEA and the FDA process requires a level of sophistication of production and compliance that is expensive, that the, the rest of the cannabis industry doesn't have to deal with. So that's where our, our premium comes from. The other thing is in terms of like the quality and the cleanliness for the products that we need to produce to, to give them to a researcher, they have to be very clean and very consistent. If you grow marijuana outdoors or you know, in some instances in a greenhouse, it's really challenging to do that because there's environmental factors. So everything we do is under a really tightly controlled uh, setting that's all indoors where we, ver we monitor all and control all the variables if it's chemical inputs, water inputs, heating, humidity, lighting, and to run that kind of manufacturing process costs, you know, it costs money. Uh, and so it, it's, it's something that we uh, are mindful of because we know our products are more expensive, uh, but it's also something that like, we just have to do uh, because of our cost of compliance and the sophistication of production. So growing businesses and startups require capital. You guys have a, an anchor investor, maybe more. 
do you think this is going to be venture backable or is this going to have to be funded through, you know, specific individuals? Like what, what's been the investor response to something like this with both, you know, an item that might not be in the social consciousness right now, but also a lot of regulatory hurdles. How folks engage with this from the investor standpoint? Um, the We're really, really fortunate and lucky to have investors that understand our business and believe in what we're doing. Is it a traditional sort of venture-backed software tech company? Heck no. We have a, a physical footprint where we're actually making something, making something that you can touch and feel and distribute. Um, that being said, they do understand uh, and I think they understand the societal good and benefits that will come out of what we're doing. And we're, you know, we're a business. We are not ashamed by saying we hope to employ people and pay taxes and grow our business. And there is commercial application to that. I would say our, our typical investor uh, has experience in or understands biotech or the life sciences or pharmaceutical production because they understand the cost of compliance and the importance on quality uh, and sophistication and frankly, the payout that can come. If we partner with someone to develop a cannabis-based drug, uh, then that is um, a wonderful opportunity to recoup investment costs, make money, and more importantly, help people uh, with our product. So I think some of our investors have exposure to traditional venture capital, um, but this is, in my opinion, this is, uh, what we're doing now is not sort of your standard Sandhill Road, you know, the Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Uh, it's not that type of business because it's not a, a, a software business where we don't physically make something. Like this is biotech, life science, healthcare. And do you get any pushback from family or friends on the industry you're, you're engaged in? None, none at all. Uh, I think it, when I started, um, when I started, I told my mom and dad what I was doing and we're not like a conservative family, but it's, you know, we're in the Southeast. Uh, we're certainly more just societally conservative than, than San Francisco. Uh, but I remember my parents when we started this had like, didn't really understand it because nobody has done this in the country. So they were kind of like, I don't understand. Like that sounds really risky and we don't fully understand what you're doing. But immediately after having explained it to them, they were so supportive uh, of me and of our, our company and our business. And now every I mean, every, I think the only pushback we get is like kind of just shock from most people when they hear that like a doctor or a hospital or a biotech company can't access marijuana. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why has no one ever gone through this process? So every you know, everybody's using CBD or marijuana for everything under the sun. What do you mean doctors aren't really spending it? So they're more shocked and there's pushback against like the system. Uh, Absolutely. And so as you think about leading teams, you know, you've done it in the military, small unit tactics, now you're leading a, a six plus person startup. What are some of the lessons you've been able to apply? And what are some of the differences that you've noticed in leading different types of organizations of these, of these magnitudes? The two, I'd say the, the lessons I've applied or that I've learned the most, uh, first is like a saying in the military, um, certainly in the SEAL teams, I don't know about the rest of the military, but the commander's intent, um, which is, I'm, I need to tell you what the objective of this mission is. I'm going to tell you why uh, and what, but you have to figure out the how. I'm not going to dictate exactly how we do this, but I I'm going to tell you what the end state is and what our goal is. And we'll get there collaboratively, but like, 
you're the expert, you figure out how to get us there and let me know what resources you need. And so that's sort of the first lesson I learned in the military. It's directly relevant to what we're doing now is just practice and, and distill commander's intent uh, and let the experts run their, run their departments and, and good things happen. Um, so that's kind of the first, first piece. The second is more around culture. So in, on Fridays in the SEAL team, there's a thing called Frogman Friday. The, the sort of nickname of the SEALs is Frogman, um, harkening back to World War II. But there's this concept called Frogman Friday, which is whenever you're in garrison, meaning you know back in the States and you're not deployed, um, you have Frogman Friday, where it's kind of an informal, it'd be the equivalent of like a Hawaiian shirt Friday kind of thing, where like you do a long, hard workout that you call a monster mash. So you do, you know, five mile run, two mile swim, three mile run, something like that. It's just brutal. Everybody does it together. And then at the finish, you finish back at your team, uh, team building, you have a cookout and there's like a keg of beer there for all the guys. And I think that environment and experience, one just shared experience and shared physical sort of suffering, like the running, that builds so much continuity and so much culture and the ability to seamlessly communicate because you have an, a personal understanding of who everybody is. That lesson of culture, I think, um, is one that is really important. So every Friday at BRC, you know, unfortunately, we don't do, you know, swim or run, but we do every Friday, we barbecue, we cook for ourselves. Uh, and at the end of the workday, we all sit around and have, you know, a beer and glass of wine together um, as a way to kind of mark the end of our work week, celebrate or celebrate our achievements or like, you know, where we've messed up. And it personalizes our experience and allows us to seamlessly communicate with each other because we're not just, you know, random employees stuck in an office together. Um, I think those are like the, the two lessons I've, I've learned the most. And other differences that you've found leading a team of civilians at a startup vice, you know, going into combat with <laughs> 60 or best trained guys. Uh, yes. Um, I think one, you have to talk to people differently. <laughs> As you know, the military is a very sort of, in most instances, kind of a rough and tumble gruff culture in terms of the way they present feedback or just, the way we talk to each other, we tend to give each other crap a lot more and chide people a lot more. And that's kind of like, it's almost like tough brotherly love, you know? You, you, you would feel weird if your buddy wasn't giving you a hard time about a mistake or making fun of you. Um, and I think just culturally that's less relevant in the civilian world. And people are uh, more attuned to uh, empathetic communication, which was something I've been practicing a little, <laughs> practicing a little bit of. Should have taken um, touch, you feel it, George. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I, I would have gotten kicked out of Stanford if I could say that. But so definitely the communication piece. The other piece I would say is I think, um, I think, and certainly as time has gone on, my civilian colleagues have a much better ability, much more in tune with their ability to um, be attuned to their personal lives. And that sounds like a detriment, but I, I mean it as the highest compliment. Like I think in the military, it's very, it's so all-encompassing. It owns your family life, your family experience, your friend group. You know, the the spouses tend to hang out together. You live and die by like the squadron's mood or the the team's mood, and whether or not the guys are gone or not gone. Uh, and so it really becomes your work encompasses everything you do in the military, which is wonderful. It also has its drawbacks. 
I think for us, everyone is emotionally invested in all in in our business and our mission. Uh, but our my civilian colleagues have like their own lives, their own synagogue or or church, their own friend group, and I think that's really powerful. That I wish I would have done in the military. Like get outside of your military bubble. Uh, there's just so much help out there, and I really had an appreciation for for that part of the experience. So as we come to the close here, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for making the time. Um, what's next for BRC? Like, what, what are the hurdles that you guys are, are facing and where are the opportunities that you're going to tackle next as you roll this out and hopefully get more approvals? Our next uh, sort of quarter or two quarters, a, a couple things that we're really excited about. First is this final regulatory approval and permitting uh, that we're confident is going to happen really quickly. And as soon as that happens, we will be entirely vertically integrated at every part of the value chain for cannabis and entirely federally legal in the U.S., which is really, really, really unique and hard to do. Uh, that's sort of on the short term. Uh, what that will allow us to do then is execute our next milestones, which are to turn all the different LOIs we have and supply, supply agreements we have, turn them into long-term uh, sales contracts and partner with larger institutions in academia and biotech uh, to go through the process of producing cannabis and creating can cannabis-derived drugs for uh, medical purposes and medical research. And so I'm hopeful that our next next few quarters of next year will allow us, we'll see um, some really momentous uh, agreements and partnerships, collaborations with large biotech uh, and large universities, which we'll be really, really excited about. And then, of course, we got to execute on them. And one last question for those who are interested in finding out more about BRC. Where can they go to, to get your perspectives or understand what you guys do in more depth? Uh, I'd invite them to visit our website, which is www.biopharmaresearchco.com. Biopharmaresearchco.com. Excellent. Well, George, thanks for what you're doing. Look forward to seeing you guys break through some more regulatory hurdles. And to our listeners, thanks for listening to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. We'll see you next week.